Hello there. Thank you for listening to the Kind Mind Podcast. This is Todd Fink. I have recently returned from three weeks in the Southwest. Spent a lot of time again in New Mexico, and I tend to, I don't know, experience more sides of myself in that land of enchantment. I got to travel to new parts of the state and return to White Sands, and the desert is just... It's an elegant place. I've talked about that before in previous episodes, but yeah, I had a really, a really wonderful time and uh, enjoyed the company that I had. I'm back now and happy to share this episode with you about skepticism. And I want to thank again the patrons on Patreon who are supporting this work. This would not be possible without you, and if you hadn't had a chance to check that out yet, you're more than invited to become part of that community, patreon.com slash kindmind, and there are three options to support this work. There's a $5 a month option, which gives you access to bonus content. For example, question and answer session from this episode will be exclusively available to Patreon members. And then there's a $10 a month option, which gives you the bonus content plus access to the Kind Mind Studio page on my website, which has more than a dozen guided meditations, a recommended reading list with links to purchase, and wisdom stories, and other lessons, other life lessons that may be valuable to you. And then there's a $20 a month option, which gives you everything else plus access to any of the Kind Mind gatherings, whether virtual or when we resume in person as well. You'll be able to attend those and have the registration for you and the passes all ready for you. So I would really appreciate your support there if you hadn't had a chance to yet. And you're always welcome to change your pledge if you need to, so you can try it out. And uh, if you like it, you can continue. If not, you don't have to. So. I'm happy to have you here either way, and it's important to me to make this accessible to whoever wants it, regardless of whether or not they can support it, and and I don't want there to be ads on this podcast because it just doesn't feel like the right space for that while we're exploring the meaning of life and trying to um, build trust with each other and trying to be honest and real, and, and I feel like that would just interfere with that. So, anyways, I thank you all so much for listening, for supporting, for being part of this, this journey together. This topic of skepticism, you know, it's, it's been coming up a lot when I think about whether or not people really are more skeptical than ever, as you may hear often in the news. Or are just certain groups more skeptical than others, like when it comes to science or religion or certain knowledge? When is it good and when is it not good to be skeptical? In this episode, we explore the origins of skepticism. The word skeptic has roots in ancient Greek and the philosophy of Pyrrho. It's derived from the root sound speck. Also sounds like skopos to me, which means observer, but speck meant to look. More specifically, though, to inquire and reflect within. 
Skepticism has evolved to simply mean doubt, which has its benefits and costs. Trust and doubt is regulated by the ventromedial prefrontal cortex in our brains. And this part of the brain tends to decline beyond 60 years of age. So this is consistent with reports from the National Institute of Justice estimating that 12% of adults over the age of 60 are exploited in financial crimes each year. It also explains why highly intelligent patients with injury to this part of the brain are more likely to fall victim to seemingly obvious online scams. But when it comes to skepticism in the broader sense, perhaps we could upgrade our lens there. Generally speaking, we tend to be skeptical of anything that falls outside of our worldview and overly welcoming towards that which resides within it. And with subtle meliorating, we can exchange some of our nearsightedness for farsightedness when it comes to our outlook on life and the nature of things in order to strike a healthier balance that's cautiously optimistic, uh, happily dissatisfied. And why did the skeptic develop heart disease? Because he took everything with a grain of salt. So I hope you enjoy this episode. And if you are listening in time, we have a upcoming Kind Mind Gathering on Zoom on April 27th at 7 p.m. Central Time. You can find the details on my website, michaeltodfink.com, or on social media like Facebook or Instagram at Michael Todd Fink. Please feel free to keep in touch on social media. Let me know what's on your mind. Send your feedback if you can. If you're listening on Apple Podcast, give this a five star if you can and, and leave uh, some feedback. And now on with the show. Maybe you've noticed over the years or on the podcast that there's way more stories about uh, men in history, spiritual stories about monks and spiritual masters. I wish there were more that I could share about women. I tried to share some, but the reality is that uh, it's hard for me to access them. Now, one way to think about that is because there's been more spiritual heroes among men. Or one could be skeptical about that, as I am. And I think that... There are a couple biases at play there. One bias would be the availability bias. Why do we have more literature from men? Well, because women were not permitted to learn to read, to write throughout history. They weren't allowed into certain positions in religious traditions. 
And still there are, there are wonderful tales of heroic women. So I was thinking at some point I should do an entire talk or podcast just on the female mystics that I've learned about and I'm still learning about. But thinking of this word skepticism and the availability bias, there's also the selection bias, which sometimes confuses us about what's possible. For example, with respect to structural racism and inequality for certain groups in America, you can have some symbolic changes like we've had an African-American president or we've had a black president in, in Obama. That is definitely a sign of progress, a symbol of progress for equality. But what, what that actually says about the change in the life of a person of color it may not translate to much because of selection bias and availability bias. Certain profile stories, high-profile stories, tend to stand out. Same reason why we could think the waters on a coast could have more sharks than dolphins, because if you've ever seen a shark or heard a story of a shark, it makes a stronger impression in the mind. A couple biases there. But it reminds me of a Zen story of a Japanese woman named Ryanen. She was assistant to the empress in 17th, born in 17th century Japan. She was the granddaughter of a famous warrior, Shingen, and talented as a poet as well. Everyone thought she was very beautiful as well. And she won the favor of the empress and was close to her. And at the age of 17, she was near to the royal, the royal family. But shortly afterwards, the empress died. I'm not sure how she died, but it made a deep impression on Ryanen. In a similar way that the Buddha was deeply affected when he traveled as a young prince to different parts of India and encountered death for the first time up close. That sense of impermanence awakened something, a longing in Ryanen, and she immediately turned her attention to spirituality and the search for truth and wanted to become a monastic. But she faced many painful ba barriers, the first being from her family. They were absolutely against the idea of her renouncing family life in the world to go pursue Zen Buddhism and they pressured her into marriage but Ryanen was able to make a deal with with her family and her future husband that if she could bear three children that they would release her to become a nun and so they thought well it's fair because she doesn't want this life but at least they knew their line could their family line could continue and Ryanen was able to do this by the age of 25 and at that time when after her third child she was not going to be stopped so she left and prepared for monastic life but then more challenges came she entered the first temple 
temple, she came to the town of Idu, and there was a well-known master there. But he immediately rejected her, ostensibly because she was a woman. And he said uh, something like, your physical attractiveness will be a distraction here. Then she came to another monastery, that of Master Hakuo. He was, I believe, to be more spiritually advanced. But he also turned her away, saying that your physical beauty will no doubt be a source of trouble in the monastery. So Ryanen made her way to a river to contemplate what to do next. And she saw some women washing clothes at the river and then drying them on the bank and pressing them with some hot coals or hot iron. And she went over and grabbed the hot iron and pressed it to her face and burned her entire face. And after it healed, she came back to Master uh, Hakuo and said, I don't think my physical appearance should be a problem for you anymore. And when he saw this, he realized her seriousness, the, the serious nature of her mind, that she had more zeal for spiritual growth than, than even he had. And I think he felt uh, somewhat ashamed of himself for being so concerned with the material world and her physical appearance. And then she entered into the temple into the monastery, and she wrote a poem. She has some famous poems, but I'll read one to you that she wrote on the, at the beginning of her monastic training. As a handmaid of the Empress, I burnt incense to give fragrance to my lovely clothes. Now, as a homeless nun, I burn my face to enter the world of Zen. And when she knew that her life would be departing at the end, she wrote another poem. Sixty-six times have these eyes beheld the loveliness of autumn. Ask no more. Only listen to the sound of the pines when no wind stirs. Very much like the koans we've talked about before or the haiku poems of Basho. But that story, to me, speaks to my skepticism that women could not be uh, enlightened, could not pursue spiritual truth in the same way that men could, and it's an example of one woman's courage beyond all of the limitations of the time. So that's the story of Ryanen. People have different interpretations about her deforming her face, uh, but I think it's very much like the stories you hear in Zen, whether they're true or just stories about disciples having their arms or fingers cut off to prove how serious they are. I don't think this is just a story, though, because there's lots of records of it, and it's only from a few hundred years or so back. But to me, I think it's an example of her zeal and detachment and courage and inner strength it, re it reminds me of a, of a Hindu tale also about a very noble and saintly woman 
who also wanted to pursue monastic life, but was barred from that because of the limitations of the culture. And there was a man pursuing her, even though she didn't want to be married. And he was uh, praising her for her physical beauty and expressing his love for her and how much he wanted to be intimate with her. And he was due to return. And that was going to be the time that they were going to conjugate their... I don't know if it was their marriage or their connection, their partnership. But in between the time he left for some travel or for some work, she began to fast. It was like a 30 or 40 day fast. And she saved all of her bodily waste during that period of time. So she didn't eat, but she collected her urine and her stool and kept it in a big basket. And when he returned, she was emaciated. And he was like, what happened to you? And he was aghast and he didn't want to be intimate with her. And he said, "Where? what happened to your beauty? And she says, oh, I've, I've saved it for you. And she shows him the basket of human waste. Because her message was, that's all you're concerned with is the material world and her mind was up in the heavens and and in a sense it's true like all of that was just that was once her physical manifestation transferred into into waste so it's a nice uh, introduction to skepticism but skepticism means a lot of different things to a lot of different people and in the news lately I've seen headlines that read like Americans are more skeptical than ever Uh, Americans are more Americans are skeptical of science the president is anti-science Republicans are anti-science Americans are skeptical of each other what do they mean well let's let's go at least take some time to trace the origin of skepticism the word itself skeptic comes from Greek, and the the root sound spec, which means to look. But in the case of skeptic, it specifically meant to look within. Translates to reflective or introspective. So this word had to evolve to mean different things in the modern world, but I don't think that is what people are referring to when they say Americans are so skeptical. I don't think that means more and more people are looking within and questioning themselves, inquiring within themselves. No, I think it means simply doubting, doubting anything, doubting uh, each other, doubting the news. Another way I think of the skepticism in present times is related to the social media. We might have all thought that social media was going to make us more connected and have clearer access to each other, to ideas, and improve global understanding. But that really isn't how it's unfolded. Maybe some of you have seen uh, this new Netflix documentary, The Social Dilemma. I haven't seen it, but I'm familiar with uh, the people involved, like Tristan Harris and Jaron Lanier, and I've read 
multiple books by Jaron Lanier and I've listened to Tristan talk multiple times. So I think I have a pretty good sense of what they're talking about, but it's essentially created a lot of echo chambers. Like for example, flat earthers are able to connect with each other all around the world and just build this bubble of information about the the world being flat. Now, I don't want to criticize that too much because I I don't know a whole lot about it, but just the very basic premise of the earth being flat as opposed to round is somewhat amusing to me because because of how some people talk about, well, there's a deeper message there about just being skeptical of authority. But round earth theory is actually the product of skepticism and hard scientific courage from people like Galileo who lost his freedom to you know express to the authority of the day that uh, this is not what the evidence is not supporting a flat earth that is um, the center of the universe so there is already a, it already required a revolution of skepticism and doubt of the times to achieve rounder theory <laughs> it's a uh, it's a little humorous but in in ancient Greece there were two schools of skepticism it became a philosophical movement and it's it's worth understanding these two because I think this will put modern skepticism into a little more perspective and help us understand it as a helpful tool that we can employ in a in a healthy and balanced way. But the first school was the academic skeptics, and they asserted that knowledge is impossible. So it was an epistemological argument that humans can't ascertain truth. Because if you think of anything at all that we could consider to be true, there are a couple possibilities of how it could be untrue. Like looking at the screen right now, it would seem true that we're on a call together, we're on a Zoom chat. But is it possible that we're having a dream right now? And you're dreaming that you're in a Zoom meeting with me. Yeah, it's it's possible. It may not be likely, but it has happened in my case where I've had dreams that were so real they confused my waking life because I thought I had already done something until I finally realized I just didn't do it. I only dreamed that I did it and that's why I was late on something. So it is possible to be confused about that. And because of that basic dream argument, they concluded that knowledge is not really possible. There's probability and, and so on, but but to be to be sure was not possible. So that was one one sect. The other sect was the followers of the philosopher Pyrrho, and they were known as the Pyrrhonians or Pyrrhonian skepticism. Their essential point was it was a question, is knowledge possible? I think this evolves more into the scientific method that we know of today. Like I mentioned before, the 
greatest scientific mind that I was ever close to, Dr. Carl Prebum, said eloquently that uh, science gets you to the next question. Philosophy makes theories and um, hypotheses, but the actual method of observation and testing gets you to the next mystery. That's sort of the foundation of Peronian skepticism, which is really helpful because it just simply means to, to ask yourself when you think you know something, is this really true? Or what do I really know? Not like what have I heard or what, what sounds reasonable, but what do I actually know? And you could take something simple like the statement, the sun rises in the east. Well, what do I know about that? That sounds true, but upon further investigation, one would realize in the past, especially eventually, that the sun's not rising. The earth is turning. So it, it brings us to the next question. What is, it, what is this rising? Is that, is that real? No, that's an illusion. We never know until we keep exploring what is the bedrock of true. And our minds, though, have evolved to put things neatly into boxes. True, false, right, wrong. It's a function of our brains. And we tend to do that with information, to put it neatly somewhere. Also, from a social psychology perspective, as in the in the experiments of Daniel Kahneman, one of the great social psychologists, he talks about how understanding is believing. Let me give you an example. I'm going to say a statement here and I want you to listen carefully. There is a killer behind you. As you hear that and let that be absorbed, you may notice that if you understand that sentence, there's a killer behind you, your biology can change. When I read that sentence when studying the work of Kahneman, I could feel my heart rate increasing, even though I'm sitting on a couch at the time and there's no way a killer can be behind me, but I understand the sentence in the same way I can understand what's happening in a scary movie and my vital signs can change. So on a physiological level, understanding something is believing something. And that can actually distort reality for us. He calls that system one. It's the same system that's operating when we see a mirage. Just because we can get to system two, which is logic and reason and interpreting what system one is telling us, doesn't mean you stop seeing a mirage. Even though I can know in system two that there's almost zero percent chance that there's a killer behind me with a wall behind me right now, it doesn't mean that I can eliminate my physiological response. Uh, to that insight or that sentence. And so this is often what's at play psychologically 
with news, with information, and it's manipulated by people, knowing that you can understand something that can create fear, can create outrage. And when your body changes, it's synonymous with believing it. If my heart is increasing and I'm preparing to defend myself from an attacker, then on some level, I believe that there's an attacker. If I really did not believe in my body, then why are all those changes happening? Then why am I getting ready for fight flight? So our cognitive appraisal of what's happening matters a lot in terms of processing information and then making an analysis and making a judgment or, or I should say an assessment of what we want to decide to do. There's been other experiments where people are prompted in such a way that their heart rate goes up or their blood pressure goes up and then they're more likely to feel attracted to the researcher of the opposite sex if they're heterosexual. And that's because they're misinterpreting their physiological changes to be that of arousal. So anyways, we can use this evidence from psychology to be a little bit more curious and skeptical about what's going on within us. So I think when the news says people are more skeptical of this or more skeptical of that, what I find to be more accurate is that people have a worldview, a religious worldview, a psychological worldview, a cultural worldview. And we all tend to be somewhat skeptical or dubious about what is outside of that worldview. And if we want to use this as an instrument for spiritual growth, it's wise to employ it to be skeptical of what's inside my worldview. Because nowadays, what's inside your worldview may actually be like a virtual reality experiment. The news that I get from my Facebook or other social media is tailored specifically to me. There may be other people with similar worldviews, but mine is algorithmically tailored to what I like, what I look at longer, what I click on, where I shop, what's in the photos that I post or that I share, what's in my videos. And it's important then to be able to doubt our own perceptions. Bertrand Russell had a quote, something like, the problem with the world is that the foolish are cocksure and the highly intelligent always doubt themselves. And that was in an, an essay called The Triumph of Stupidity. Epictetus also had a quote, as you travel the path of philosophy, be content to be considered plain or even foolish. Do not strive to be celebrated for anything. If you are praised by others, be skeptical of yourself, for it's no easy feat to hold on to your inner harmony while collecting accolades. When grasping for one, you are likely to drop the other. So in this new virtual reality, and 
the the way news is distributed it's distributed through comments through tweets through memes some people find that they trust celebrities more they get their positions from celebrities because of what i said understanding is believing and if the tweet is worded in such a way that i understand it i feel that that can be enough for somebody and if you think of uh, media companies they're companies right so their mission first and foremost is not to, to just spread knowledge in the most accurate way that the important thing is to capture your attention everybody is competing for attention now that is the oil of the 21st century attention so they're trying to harvest attention and with that being the game it makes people suspicious so what i would be curious about when i hear about people being skeptical of science is what does that person mean by science who is science or what is science do they mean the method do they mean the institution do they mean uh the university i think americans are becoming anti not becoming continue to be anti-establishment and anti-authority and of course that's that's not an even distribution it differs between conservatives and liberals but but again whatever one's world view is people are skeptical about what's on the other the other side and vice versa i spend lots of time watching uh the different sources the different uh perspectives and while i continue to land in a in a particular uh orientation i notice that the same tactics are used on on either side to really prevent somebody from being skeptical of whatever is being delivered to them coming back to the dream argument in uh the greek skepticism even before the peronians you had chuangzu in ancient taoist china writing that he slept and dreamt that he was a butterfly fluttering happily and then he awoke and found himself to be a man named chuangzu confused about whether or not he was a man who had dreamt he was a butterfly or whether he was a butterfly now dreaming that he's a man and this may sound silly but it is the foundation of many great philosophers and great scientists inquiry into the nature of consciousness and a uh, theory of mind and it, it it's even like a recurring theme in the shows like Rick and Morty on TV uh but Descartes was another hundreds of years later who tried to build off that confusion with his um evil genius argument if there were an evil genius who could manipulate everybody this is a, a global skepticism if somebody was intelligent enough rich enough corrupt enough 
would they be willing to distort everyone's reality? And Descartes thought, yeah, for sure. So, so how could you prove that there isn't an evil genius that is pulling the wool over everybody's eyes? And later, philosophers took this to another level with the vat in the brain hypothesis, that it's conceivable in the future that we could preserve one's brain in some liquid and be able to connect it to a supercomputer and be able to feed all of the experiences to the brain such that a person would feel as though their life is as we experience it, but there would only be in a simulation. And most recently, philosopher and futurist Nick Bostrom of Oxford University has made impressive arguments about living in a simulation. He has a TED talk about it, I think, and a couple papers that have been well received around the world by many think many great thinkers and uh, contemporaries. But he has uh, a trilemma, and one point is that, well, he says one of these three things is true, and he lays out a bunch of arguments. I won't go into that, but I'll just tell you these three points that he says one of them has to be true. One is that. It is very unlikely that civilization will advance to a post-human world. Post-human means as technology expands and advances and branches like nanotechnology, which is microscopic structures that can go into our bodies and monitor our health and help us live forever. Transplants, artificial organs, and so on. He's saying eventually... We could get to a post-human civilization where our brains are essentially downloaded into a computer and we know how to exist in virtual reality and life is better in virtual reality than regular reality. And plus, in the, in the, the digital experience, you live thousands of years and if you wanted to just have a normal human body experience, it would be like 80 years. So one, he's saying either that's not possible or the second one was, it's very unlikely that if we get to that point, that those people would be interested in creating a simulation of ancestors and evolution. Or third, we are definitely living in a simulation now. And the logic there is, aside from the other two, if we were in that advanced state, then we would be in a simulation. Meaning, if we could do it, we wouldn't know that we're in it. Because, just like in a dream, we don't know that we're, we're dreaming. Only like, one out of 20 dreams, there's some sense that something's up, that it might not be reality. And some people are, are better at that. And, in fact, scientists have found evidence that gamers are more likely to lucid dream than other people because they spend more time in a simulation and understanding that they're in a simulation so they're more likely to see their dreams as a simulation and gain mastery over the dream world. I'm not saying that as a encouragement to play more video games, but but the simulation idea has captured my imagination and I've been curious as to why why don't we know that we're dreaming for the most part? And I thought maybe it's because as 
previous thinkers had hypothesized was that when you're asleep, your brain is offline except the imagination regions. But neuroscientists have found that that's not true. All the, all the regions of the brain are involved when you're having a dream, and scientists can even know, to some extent, what the theme of a dream might be. Because if a person's facial recognition areas in the cortex are activated, you can get a sense of what might be going on. They might be seeing people. If, there's, if someone's being chased, you would see activity in the amygdala and fight flight and so on. The real reason we don't know, according to the best evidence now, is that it is such a good simulation of reality. That is the, the current consensus, that we take dreams for real, to be real, only because it's such a good hologram. Which is scary, because if, if that's the case, then it's some evidence that our mind can create the world. And this is what mystics have said, and this is what you can find in scriptures or texts like uh, Yoga Vasishta, which is all about the nature of consciousness and how there's a difference between what we're perceiving and what reality is. In the work of cognitive scientist Donald Huffman, he has a book called The Case Against Reality, he makes a really intriguing argument about how evolution has not wired us for accurate perception. It has wired us for fitness. Meaning that, well, previously it was evolutionary biologists thought that we have, uh, nature has selected for accurate vision. But tests have shown that that's not true. Evolution has selected for whatever shortcuts would help you have children and survive. So for example, we see shades of green better than we see other colors because those who could see more shades of green were had an easier time detecting snakes and could avoid snake bites. Now, some, some proof of this that perception is not reality is one is that we have a blind spot, two blind spots in our field of vision. That is because where the optic nerve meets the eyeball, there's no rods or cone cells there. And it's not directly in the back of our eyes. You would think it's off to the side. That way we can look directly at what we want to see and have the highest resolution. And that is true for us and other predators. We have frontal vision because we're higher up on the food chain. We have about a 180 degree optical field and animals that are prey like um, horse, cattle, sheep, they do not have binocular vision like we do. Binocular vision means we have depth and range, but they end us giving a, uh, a, cyclop like a cyclops image. And when both eyes are open, you don't see your nose, but if you close one of your eyes, you can see your nose. So when you open both eyes, the binocular vision creates one cyclops and it removes your nose so that's not distracting. And we can't see behind us because we haven't needed to in the way that other animals have. So horses have a wider range of vision and so do some birds. The pigeon for instance has 
two eyes, but they have monocular vision for the most part, except up in front, they have a small field of binocular vision, and they essentially can see 360 degrees. Can you imagine being able to see completely around you without making any rotations? So we just get used to the to 180 to 200 degrees of vision, and that just feels like what it is. That's just what it is to exist, to sit behind my eyes and drive my body, and that's life. Right? We can't even conceive that it could be any different. But even within this field of vision, we have two blind spots. So I'd like, to, I'd like you to uh, experience this if you haven't before, because this is an example of how it's hard to just tell somebody you have a blind spot. But if you can show them, then people can get the direct experience. So if you take your thumb and extend it out in front of you, stretch your arm out, then close your left eye and stare directly at your fingernail on your thumb. Then lock your eye in that spot and slowly move your thumb to the right. Do not move your eye, just move the thumb. And once you get about five, six inches to the right, the thumb tip should disappear. If you go any further, it'll reappear. And if you bring it back, it'll reappear. And that is true on the other side. That's because that's where the optic nerve meets the eyeball. So what's happening there? We're not seeing reality. There's a simulation, at least that much in our experience is a simulation. The brain takes all of the data from the rest of the environment and closes that hole so that you don't just see nothingness there. You actually get a complete image. You can find many other optical illusions like this and they exist for all five senses which simply means that we ought to be skeptical about our perception we ought to be skeptical about our memory I hear many people when you get into arguments and conflicts hear people feel very confident about their memory I know for a fact this is what happened you said this uh, but when we can be more skeptical in a balanced way about our perception and our memory, it can make us humble. It can make us open-minded. It can help us to drill deeper into the details of circumstances and keep asking the next question that can give us more and more clarity about a situation. Our brain dedicates, some say a quarter, some say up to 50%, you know, Researchers at the University of Rochester have recently said that 50% of the cortex is dedicated to visual processing. I think that that could be why we feel as though we exist in our head behind our eyes. Like that's kind of the seat of the self. I asked somebody today, where do you feel you exist? And they said, I feel like I'm in my heart. And somebody said, that's an oxymoron. How can you be in your heart? You're talking about a place. So clearly the place is not you if it sounds more like a room in your home. And she started laughing. And then she's like, no, I guess I do feel like I'm up here. So I want to do another experiment with you. If you can just bring your attention to the sensation of looking out your eyes. Notice how it feels like you exist behind your eyes and you're looking out but now I want you to close your right eye 
and just look out the left. Do you notice how it feels like you sit behind your left eye now? I can actually feel my sense of self move to the left. It no longer feels like it's behind the right eye. Then if I close my left eye and look out the right, now it feels like I'm over here. Which suggests to me that the sense of self is an illusion. It just It's related to the amount of processing the brain dedicates to vision, then gives the locus of self behind the eyes. And actually not behind the eyes, but behind looking. So it's it, if it can just reorient like that, to me it means that that could be an illusion. And it warrants further spiritual inquiry, which is what mystics have said. Try to find the self. In meditation, look for the thinker. Look for the thinker of the thoughts. And realization then is little more than realizing what you're not and i think people like ramdas in his last documentary becoming nobody is what that means that all the while we've been working hard to prop up this identity that isn't true isn't real and so there isn't a self to find but there is a false sense to shed and that may sound scary, but at the same time, it's in that false self that all of our limitations exist. The pain of our past, the mistakes that we've made, the people that have hurt us, and all the limitations that come with that sense of self and all the fears of uh, what one could lose by maintaining that sense of self. So I want to read to you, before we wrap up here, a longer poem from Chuang Tzu about this. No self is true self. The man in whom Tao acts without impediment does not bother with his own interests and does not despise others who do. He does not struggle to make money and does not make a virtue of poverty. He goes his way without relying on others and does not pride himself on walking alone. While he does not follow the crowd, he won't complain of those who do. Rank and reward make no appeal to him. Disgrace and shame do not deter him. He is not always looking for right and wrong, always deciding yes and no. The ancients said, therefore, the man of Tao remains unknown. Perfect virtue produces nothing. No self is true self. And the greatest man is nobody. So I'll conclude there by reiterating that we can use the skepticism to protect ourselves from getting sucked into black and white thinking. Let's trade our confidence about this and that black and white thinking, let's exchange it for dialogue and curiosity and self-inquiry. But most of all, I think empathy and understanding. I can build a bridge between my heart and yours to try to understand your experience without having to be uh, convinced of anything. 
without having to be 100% on board with any particular opinion. It doesn't mean that, you know, you can't, you don't make decisions or you don't vote or, or, you know, participate in life, in, uh, in politics, in activism, and so on. But we can do so with this deeper spiritual sense that that I, I don't know what's completely true about myself. I'm trying to under, I'm trying to know myself. And that openness is a scary thing for many people, but I think like in uh, the tarot, the first card, the fool, we think many think that's that's not the card you want. But the fool is really uh, complete. Above the head of the fool is a zero. The zero is like that Zen swoosh. It means emptiness. And as you see in all of these koans and contradictory stories, it says, be content to appear foolish. Because everybody else is cocksure, like Bertrand Russell said. The open-minded one, the open-hearted one, has space to hold different perspectives, to accept dialectics, to accept that my perception may be a simulation. At the same time, I need to take it seriously. Like Donald Huffman said, everything you're experiencing is like a 360, three-dimensional desktop. You're just seeing icons. It doesn't mean it doesn't matter, though, because if you take the icon of your TED Talk and you move it to the trash bin, that has some real effects, right? Even though you're just moving digital parts. Same is true in life. The symbols matter right so you can take everything seriously while not taking everything literally <laughs>